Welcome along to the Newcastle 500. On this episode, we're saying goodbye to SEO, paid digital ads and television advertising, throwing out our billboards and our radios and tearing up those contracts with marketing agencies. There's a whole new way to market. And what about that housing crisis, hey? Rental expenses getting out of hand? Feeling like you'll never be able to afford a house? Well, we have the solution for you if you stick around. This is HQLA episode 30. Incredible. Can you believe we've done 30? Uh, no, I think that's pretty impressive, isn't it? It is impressive. Yeah. Um, we, we, uh, <laughs> we're in this for the long haul. That's um, right. We are not one of those just intermittent podcasters that started during COVID and uh, stopping at the end of COVID. That's right. <laughs> there's um, actually a lot of, if you go into Facebook Marketplace and you're into podcasting, um, there's a lot of full setups that you can kind of grab from people who have just not picked up again. Nah, that's right. Two um, episodes, maybe three. Yep. You know? Right. Uh, so we're here back in Newey. Uh, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a keen follower, you'll have noticed that our last episode was remote and uh, we are back together again. So uh, we're back in Newcastle. This is the uh, Thrifty 500, as Isaac mentioned. Yep. We're in the Newcastle Supercars event. We are trackside in an apartment. So uh, it is seven o'clock in the morning and we thought, you know what, what's better than uh, starting the day off with a podcast? Absolutely. Great view behind us. Great little sun, sunrise. So uh, that's what we're doing. Thanks for joining us. Here's something exciting. Okay. Apple are launching a clean energy charging mode with iOS 16.1. Um, so that'll be interesting. So basically it means that you can charge your phone at off-peak times and it'll automatically charge your phone at off-peak times. Oh, so you just leave it plugged in and it decides overnight or something when the off-peak times are. Yeah, that's wow. right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So I feel like that could be a bit detrimental. That could be an issue if you just wanted it charged. If you really need it charged. Or if but you're you like a shift worker or something, can you like... It starts charging when you like go to wake up or something. Yeah. Like, could be some issues there, but uh, I like the concept. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, here we go. Matthew McConaughey is reportedly being paid $10 million a year to work at Salesforce under the title Creative Advisor and TV Pitchman. This is at the same time as Salesforce has cut back on 10% of its workforce, laying off roughly 7,350 employees. Um, so it really makes you wonder how, much, how many of them you could pay with 10 million. Sure. So if you look at Salesforce, roughly 40 to 60 people making $200,000 each, then that would be the, that $10 million oh, expense. It actually equals it. So, I mean, yeah, that would, that would be that kind of wow. level. So it also makes you wonder what, um, what he's doing. So. Well, who knows? All right, all right, all right. It's a marketing expense. Could be working for them. Could be making them more than that, but uh, yeah, I'm kind true. of doubting it. What's the return on that? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? He's the TV pitch man. So. What movie has he been in? <laughs> he's been in a lot of movies. Like what? He's been in The Wolf of Wall Street. Really? Yeah. What character does he play in that? He plays a stockbroker at the start. Oh, that's him? Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. One of his biggest roles, I reckon, was Dallas Buyers Club. Okay, yeah. That was a pretty iconic one. Yep, yep. Um, speaking of movies, Go ahead. Cocaine Bear has, um, has been at the movies recently, so... It's already had a box office of $54 million, which is above uh, the budget of 30 to 35. Oh, um, so that's it's, good. It's winning there. That's fantastic. Well done. It is pretty good. Yeah, I made it myself. So, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's called Cocaine Bear. Cocaine Bear. So it's about a bear that does a lot of cocaine. Oh, really? Um, Another and, one of these uh, true stories. Yeah, like it finds it in a cabin or whatever, and then, uh, and then it goes on this big rampage, and it uh, looks pretty hilarious. 
Um, and the reason that I bring this up is because they had this really interesting marketing in Barangaroo. They had like paw prints that they'd done out of like powder. So they'd done like white powder yep. spray painting sort of yep, on the um, ground. thing. That's cool. And um, yeah, it's already got an IMDB rating of 6.4 out of 10. So is that good? Pretty clearly claimed. Um, no. <laughs> oh, really? Well, what's 6, 6.4 out of 10 is? Yeah, yeah, but so, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I heard that IMDB ratings are like notoriously um, harsh. Is that not true? Yeah, I guess so. It's got 69% on Rotten Tomatoes as well. So that's a good... Um, it means basically that the audience liked it more than the critics did. So, gotcha. Yeah. So here's into something interesting. Llama by Meta. Um, so this is a new AI language model um, specifically designed for research. So they're not competing fully on the same space as um, GPT and BARD, but it'll be interesting to see the similarities there. Um, so apparently this model has been trained on 65 billion parameters. Which, if we compare to GPT three, it isn't many with um, GPT three on one hundred and seventy five billion. But it also looks like something they've put together quickly to try and compete with the other techs. So they're trying to come up from behind. Um, so if they can move faster on it and they can make something better, um, it'll be really cool to see if they uh, actually win. And a lot of people use Facebook and Instagram every day, as well as WhatsApp. So That's true. yeah, it could be something yeah. um, could be something worthwhile for them there with their existing customer base. So. So how do you take something that's as boring as a bank uh, and even more boring than that, a community mutual bank oh my and make it fun and exciting? Dress all the staff up as clowns. That's a good idea. Um, <laughs> but it's not quite as good as this idea. <laughs> See with that. Okay. So how would you do that? But then you would make it in a way that you don't have to pay for advertising. How would I do it so that you don't have to pay for advertising? Yeah. No, this question questions too hard. Yeah. Like, are they clowns on the street? You know, like. Oh, right. They're, they're branded clowns. <laughs> they're branded clowns. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, it's actually not. It's gamification. <laughs> so, okay. this isn't even about a bank. Um, it's about a community bank that has built an advertising platform to advertise fintechs. So, this is really cool. So, what do I mean? I'm talking about a game that is accessible on browser. It's playable without needing to sign up or log in. And it's called, do you have the, um, oh, yeah. do you have, do you have the internet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you got that on iPad? I'm aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> so on your internet device, um, <laughs> essentially what you start with is you, started. you answer a few questions about what you're interested in in finance. Um, and so I actually came across this website not realizing, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> so you answer a few questions about what you're interested in finance and you can answer from saving, budgeting, building credit, business, and smart sending, spending. Um, and then you can answer what topic or theme you're most interested in from that. So you can choose from environment, diversity, inclusion, family, giving back, and health and wellness. Oh, yeah. I've got this. I've got here. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Um, so you choose from those. Um, and so for me, what I chose was business and health and wellness. You can choose um, something else. Uh, if you're playing along at home, um, are you playing along in the I car? I choose to be financially free. There's no option. <laughs> okay. like the fintechs aren't incredible. They're not, they're not magical. Like, yeah. <laughs> Giving back, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, what I chose was business and health and wellness. Um, and then it sends a little character that you can control to this island. And you walk around. Um, you're walking around this fun cartoon island and you come across these little characters who are at vendor stands. And they're like... There's a feeling in the air, am I right? Yeah. And then they're doing like a little conversation. <laughs> he said we're, we're bringing good vibes and bringing people together. Okay. Um, so basically, as you go around, you'll come across um, these little characters on these vendor stands, and, um, and they're actually all advertising a product. 
so on the first island I was on, there are essentially five fintechs. Um, but uh, even better than that is um, they give you all little tasks to do around the island, which are related to their fintech, um, right. which is cool. So this is a game um, created by Coastal Community Bank. So how do you take a bunch of fintechs and actually get people to sign up? It's making people play games that represent what your startup actually does. So in this case, there were five games to play. So um, there was Pomelo, which is a, uh, a fintech that allows for international money transfer. Mm-hmm. No, you've got to keep playing. No, I was playing. <laughs> <laughs> I finished it. Um, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so there's fintechs that allow for international money transfer. So their catchphrase is that they connect people from afar. Sorry, just clarifying. So when you say there's fintechs, you're saying all of those little merchants that I was talking to, they're all separate fintechs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go around and you and you go to a little okay, person. But those were, those were more, um, they're also like little side characters as well. So gotcha. some of the fintechs are more vendors. Okay. Um, they're at like a little stand that is actually like as though you're at a conference and you, yes. um, and you see the stand. Okay, so then there's Bridget, which was a fintech which provides you with $50 to $100 to $250 loans. Um, with no credit checks and, checks and no interest. Interesting. Um, no interest? Yeah. So that's, What's um, the point of that? Well, it's probably like an, an afterpay situation where it's like... Oh, they, okay. They may charge you, you like 300% interest if you're like two seconds late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something okay. like that. Okay. Um, so that helps you budget your money as well um, and it helps you all around in managing your expenses. Um, so the, the mini game for this one is where you meet this character and he wants to have a bike race, and then you have little bike races against each other down this hill. Would it be accurate to say that they've sort of made like a little metaverse? Well, I'm getting to that um, point. So basically the whole point of that one was that the character was saving for a bike. But there's a solid list of about 10 to 15 that are, um, that are on all the little islands. There was also Avon, which is a fintech that's built on the idea of um, financing home improvements. Yeah, cool. Um, so for this game, you walk around the island and you, you meet people that have houses that are looking a little run down. Um, and then what you do is that you go and you improve the houses. Um, and then what you can do to see all of the companies on one screen is you pull up this little in-game uh, mobile phone and you can scroll through the fintechs and look at each one. Yeah, right. You click on them one by one. And there's an article and an intro video about them and they'll tell you what they do and, um, and why they want you to sign Good up. Good idea. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So the company behind it, it's Coastal Community Bank. Um, and they're actually a business bank. Uh, and so it looks like what they'll do is you're standing. What a cool project for them. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, well it's, done. Um, it's really interesting. Have you shown anyone at the place that you may or may not work? <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, but it is, it is very interesting. It's a bit different, um, but it is cool. So it looks like they'll do uh, your standard lending, your credit card stuff, but they'll also do treasury management. Um, so if you know me, a business bank that does treasury management and makes its own video games um, is a very interesting combo there. Um, <laughs> That's right. It, so, it encapsulates everything that you are. Yeah, everything that I am. <laughs> uh, everything's a simulation. Um, so they might not seem to be all that huge, um, but uh, they have a 15 locations in Washington State in the US, and then um, that's all. So it's all, all in Washington there. Um, something that stood out to me or um, more didn't stand out to me was that Ooh. their website doesn't really have a mention of the game that they've made, which is cool. Oh, wow. Um, totally separate. Yeah, so they've got yeah, it there, cool. but they've got their branding on the actual game, but yep. they don't have the game in their um, website. Maybe because their current customer base would find it a bit silly or something. Maybe, yeah. Um, and they're just trying to encourage the use of, of fintechs to yeah. make your life better. So That's cool. Very cool, actually. How'd you find that? 
uh, it's interesting and it'll be a future segment, I think. Okay. But yeah, it's um, but I did just stumble across it and um, I didn't realize it was a financial um, thing or a game. And so, yeah, I was on there and then I was like, oh, this is cool. Um, so I wouldn't really call it a, um, is it, you know, how does this tie into crypto metaverses, all that stuff? I wouldn't really call it a metaverse, um, though there is a game area to walk around in. There are no other players to interact with. Um, so you don't have all those advantages and disadvantages of metaverses. Um, there's no customizable spaces or um, things like that. It'd be cool if they had staff members walking around. Yeah. <laughs> like doing, live chatting to people? Doing live chat, yeah. Like VR. Um, yeah, it's not really like a VR, AR experience or anything like that. Um, in saying that, metaverses are a similar concept. So let's have a quick look into a few of them. Um, so we've got Sand, which was um, Sandbox. Yep. So this coin is down 78% in the one year view. Um, this was one of the most popular metaverses. Um, the other one was Mana, um, Decentraland's yes. Mana. Um, this one's down 75% in the one year view, which was another popular um, one of those metaverses. There's a lot of concepts and things on that one, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So what are the other um, examples of metaverse advertising that we've seen? Um, and how is Meta doing? That's um, probably what you were wondering. Yeah, okay. Um, cool. <laughs> and so basically, JP Morgan launched a hangout space in the metaverse last year. Um, so this was an area inside Decentraland. And it was honestly very strange. It was kind of funny. <laughs> um, but uh, they really thought it was um, a real future play. So um, they had a little um, area. Uh, I think they had a little portrait of Jamie Dimon, the um, CEO. Um, it was all, all very odd. And then all random people would just be in there um, trolling each other. Yeah, well, that's right. I, I can imagine the people who are playing those games are not necessarily the type of customers that JP Morgan might be looking to um, you know, encourage to be a part of their mm. organization. But they were making sure to invest in um, future ideas, and so that's what they were um, concerned about. So Facebook became meta a year ago. Um, and so, well, a little bit more Very than fast. Yeah, a little bit more than a year now. Do you remember um, that big long video that yeah. um, Zuck did? Yeah, the Zuck. Yeah, it was very strange. Yeah, explain it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so since then, we have seen um, he's been doing some MMA stuff with like metaverse trackers on him uh, to kind of show him off. They've pumped over $10 billion into creating their own metaverse. Mm -hmm. um, and in my mind, that hasn't really gone anywhere. Like, I'm not really sure. Maybe I'm judging too soon, or maybe I don't actually see. The users of that um, must be big in the US. I don't know. Um, maybe. Maybe, yeah. Or maybe they just haven't um, fully got there yet. Anyway, overall, I think that this advertising method is a really good idea. Um, they're building a platform and then selling advertising space on a fun little quirky game. Um, it's a brilliant way to capture attention and build your brand. Uh, and they might not even um, have it set up as an advertising model yet, though, um, like... They might get paid on signups or they might have some kind of affiliate fee or maybe they own a little piece of all these fintechs or they could all just be customers of Coastal Community Bank and they're adding a little bit of value there by, um, by adding that. Um, and the more users that they have, the more kind of secure that Coastal Community Bank's um, position is. So yeah, when, when one of the individual fintechs grow, kind of the whole group kind of grows together in that sense, um, which is really cool. Okay. Uh, and the idea is kind of more solidified. So in terms of marketing, is this the future? Will people be able to sell directly within games uh, and explore products in little metaverse-like situations? Uh, I'm not sure, but um, I feel like it's a, a big opportunity. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like buying Facebook ads in 2010 or getting into Google ads in early 2000s. Um, it might have an ab abnormally large return um, on ad spend or it could just be a total flop. So Yeah, it's cool. 
I like it. It shows a lot of innovation on behalf of the organization. I think that goes a long way uh, to its member base, just seeing that they're willing to, to, to a reasonable extent, invest in what appears to be the next era of, of technology. And so I think, it, uh, I think, it's, I think it's fantastic. I, I think, agree. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So last week, uh, episode 29... Our first ever remote episode, uh, we talked about Hermes, we talked about uh, large um, luxury fashion brands uh, throughout the world. We realized that there's sort of a, uh, about five or six that uh, control the whole market. Um, and one of those, one of the more longstanding, uh, um, I guess, editions of those is Hermes. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Hermes has... Um, there's, there's an interesting case that just finalized between when we recorded the uh, last episode and me speaking now, and it's in regards to NFTs, and it relates to Hermes. Are you aware of this at all? No, I don't know. Okay, sure. fantastic. It's worth being aware of. This is, uh, this is what's called a, uh, a precedent case. So it's based in the US, and it basically has set uh, what you could potentially consider to be new law judge-made law in relation to NFTs in America. Interesting. So for those, um, just very briefly, so um, in regards to law uh, in, common, uh, in common law uh, countries, which is countries such as the US and Australia and the UK and, and others, uh, law is made in two ways. Do you know what those two ways are? Uh, legislative and um, yeah. common law yeah. um, court yeah, ca cases. Yeah, that's right. So case law, that's right. So judges make them and, and legislatures. Uh, make it. And so uh, the courts can make it much faster. It doesn't have to go through parliament and through the bill process. And so this is an example of that. So this is how um, the law can change and adapt with societal expectations and changes. So um, for those of you who haven't watched last episode, let me give you a quick little rundown here. So Hermes, uh, they're a luxury uh, brand. They're known for, uh, among a few things, uh, we talked about the Birkenbag. Remember the Birkenbag yeah, yeah, um, yeah. last week? I went and found a few figures, right? So yeah, in, in the US alone, they've sold more than a billion dollars USD in revenue worth of just Birkin bags. Yeah, right. Which is pretty significant uh, since its inception. Uh, and they regularly sell, for those who weren't watching last week, for somewhere around 10 to 15,000 US dollars, uh, generally speaking, although there's some outliers in that regard. And very much so the bags, and this is, these are important topics when we get to the, uh, the case in a second. Uh, the bags are very much ingrained in culture, right? And they very much represent wealth and exclusivity. Brent? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and interestingly enough, it's worth noting that uh, Hermes has trademarked both the word Birkin yep. and the shape of the bag. So now uh, there's an NFT project which you can go and look up, and it's called Meta Birkin. If you, I mean, if you've got your laptop there, you may as well have a look, right? And so this was created by an individual named Mason Rothschild, and uh, it was basically a collection of a hundred blurry, furry images of digital Birkin bags. Uh, and so basically, the mint price for these when it first came out uh, in December 2021 was four, equivalent to 450 US dollars. Uh, which is pretty significant dollars for, you know, an image. But, you know, in those times, that's what was happening. It's, uh, I'm looking at a furry bag with a banana taped to it. Perfect. So, okay. That's a good yeah. example. Some of these images have sold for upwards of $40,000 in the uh, secondary market right around mint time. 
which is sort of often when the hype is really happening. So that's context on Hermes, and that's context on this completely separate, and it's, it's, it's important to note, make that note, completely separate collection created by a completely separate individual, okay? okay? This guy's an artist in LA, he's done a bunch of other things, and he's created this collection. Right, so he's not involved or associated with He's not with involved Hermes. or associated with Hermes. Now, there is some, I guess, information out there stating that he did approach Hermes to try and see if they'd be a part of it. If that's true, they certainly didn't agree to be a part of it. And that's almost worse because they, it means he knowingly asked them to be a part of it and they've said no. That's right. It's, it's sort of equivalent to asking your parents if you can do something and then they say no and then you go and do it. Yeah, yeah. It's much worse than if you just hadn't have asked them. Yeah. I think exactly. every kid knows that. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it's possibly true. So basically what happened was uh, in, so 3rd of December, 2021, the collection drops. Uh, 16th of December, so sort of two weeks later, uh, Hermes sent Rothschild a cease and desist letter, right? Basically alleging that Meta Birkin's NFT collection had infringed on their trademark. Remember what, what did I say they trademarked? They trademarked the, both the shape of the bag and yes. the name of the bag. Yeah, exactly did you right. say his name is Nathan Rothschild? No. Okay. Mason. <laughs> Mason Rothschild. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I thought that- it was the really famous... Um, Descendant of the Rothschilds. No, no. I, I, that's a good question. I, first of all, there's no S on the end, so I think it might be like a totally different family. Because is it Rothschild or is it Rothschilds? No, well, Rothschild is the, the famous name. Oh, okay. Well, so is, it, is it like, um, oh, no, this is, yeah, Rothschild. I, that yeah. is how you spell it. Yeah. That's how you spell this guy's name. Right, too. okay. I don't know if he's this some sort the, of descendant. The, this is the banking empire. Yes, that's right. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know if it's related. Right, okay. Tell us in the comments if it's related. Okay, cool. Sounds good. So at that time, uh, he got a cease and desist letter. Uh, that letter that was also sent to OpenSea because it was obviously listed on OpenSea as the collection. Uh, and so OpenSea did remove it uh, at that time. And uh, Rothschild argued that his NFT collection was protected by the First Amendment. Okay. Uh, which basically freedom is, of speech. Exactly, just freedom yeah. of speech. And he was saying that it, it was giving him the freedom to create and just to create art based on his own interpretation of the world as he saw it around him. Okay, so that's a very broad general statement. And so uh, you'll be able to see here, hopefully, um, I've got the letter. He published the letter that he sent back to Hermes. Yep. And so he's put it on his Instagram so that you can read that now uh, if you're watching the video version of this. Um, it basically just says what I've told you there in regards to him creating art. So now on 14th of January, 2022, uh, Hermes had enough, right? So this is sort of circa a month later. Um, so Hermes brought a suit, a lawsuit uh, to the New York Federal Court. And uh, they were seeking damages. Now, um, do you know what I mean by damages? I don't know. Seeking damages means that um, essentially you're hoping for a payment um, for the damage to your brand or um, in the, like in this case, the damage to your brand. Exactly. So damages is just monetary compensation. Uh, and so the calculation uh, was going, was well, what, what they were claiming was damages uh, for the profits that he had made off a trademark that they owned. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Absolutely. And on top of that, they were seeking an injunction. Do you know what an injunction is? Uh, I'm not sure. Is that a cease and desist on stopping business? Yes. So basically an injunction uh, just prevents someone from doing something that they're going to do. Yeah. So in this situation, the injunction is to stop the sale of the collection uh, on OpenSea and and on his platform. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a a cease and desist stop uh, order that they're seeking. And they're seeking some monetary compensation. Yeah. Also, I've looked up um, his real name is Sonny S- 
Estival, and uh, it looks like he's just using the oh, uh, Rothschild name, which might be another um, cease and desist um, <laughs> case <laughs> in the making. Sure, I think. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so the, the the Hermes suit was based on three things. You ready? Trademark infringement. Trademark infringement. We know what that is. So that's based on the word and also based on the shape of the bag. Causation. No. Oh. <laughs> Legislation. <laughs> Stop saying legal words. <laughs> um, dilution, which is an interesting one. So dilution <laughs> is basically saying that use of the word Birkin ha- has damaged their distinct quality that's associated with their brand. Yeah. Okay. So it's almost like, you know, goodwill. It's sort of like saying, listen, we had this goodwill built up. Now you've defamed that goodwill to a certain extent. Yeah. And so we want some compensation for that. And the final one, I don't know a lot about, but it's interesting. <clears throat> it's called cyber squatting. Cyber squatting. Uh, and okay. so it's the use of a similar domain name that may be confusing to consumers. And so he was using the domain name www.metaburkins.com. Right. And so they were just claiming that that's confusing. Uh, uh, you know, maybe not such a good argument because their domain would not have been anything to do with Birkins. It would have been something about Hermes. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's an interesting, uh, interesting claim. Um, so they also mentioned that, so we've seen a lot of luxury brands come into the NFT space, right? So if you look online, uh, there's a few that have created some collections. And Hermes also claimed, generally speaking, that uh, Rothschild's or Mason's project had also disrupted their future endeavors to be a part of the NFT space because now consumers are con- confused as to yeah. who owns what and what's going on, right? Yep. So then after this lawsuit is filed, Hermes releases another letter uh, to his community this time um, on Instagram. Again, we'll post that. And it just, again, uh, it basically argues his point regarding free speech, et cetera, et cetera. Talks about Hermes not being up to date with the times, et cetera, like that. Trying to intimidate him, stuff like that. So um, now, it's worth noting this, right? I'm hoping this is a little bit interesting for some people who are interested in how the law works. So basically, uh, in the US, uh, they use, the, a, a jury is not always in place. Yeah. But where there's a significant issue of fact, which means uh, there's two sides to a story and we need to figure out what actually happened in the situation, oftentimes that, oftentimes that goes to a jury for them to make a decision as to what they think actually happened. Okay? So in this situation, um, basically, uh, there was so many issues of fact in regards to what was his intentions, what, uh, you know, who said what to who about how much he was going to sell stuff for and, and et cetera, et cetera that the judge who originally saw this case decided that he couldn't decide those issues of fact. Yep. And so he sent it to a jury. Now, the issue with sending a case to a jury is that they don't write a judgment when they make their decision. Yeah, so right? does that mean that it's harder to um, put the common law case into writing? Or? Well, yes, it's harder to understand uh, what their reasoning was as to why someone won or lost a case, right? Because mm. they don't publish it. And it, in Australia particularly, uh, you're actually not allowed to know any reasoning as to why they made that decision. Okay, interesting. So um, that would be difficult to ratify then. Well, yes. It's, di- <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's difficult to pull any principles from the case. Um, so basically what we've got here instead is the judge's summary judgment. So just before it went to the jury, both parties asked the judge to look at the case, just paraphrasing here, to see whether he could summarily, which means just as a single judge, make a decision and uh, make a determination. At the end, he, he decides that he can't and needs to go to a jury, but we can use this case. He pulls a lot of legal principles and reasoning out, okay? 
And I honestly think it's going to be really interesting. It's, it's not very long at all. I've, I've summarized it quite well, I think. Um, okay, so basically, um, both parties wanted this summary judgment. And so it doesn't always have to happen, but they both raised a motion for a summary judgment. Uh, and so there's two tests. Okay, law often works like this. The tests are based on previous cases. So the first test is called the Rogers and Grimaldi test. Okay. All right. And so this is a test used for any uh, piece of material that is determined as an artistic work. So if you can first determine that it's artistic in nature, intentionally artistic, et cetera, et cetera, then it can fall into this test to see whether it's infringed on someone's intellectual property. Now, if it's determined as a commercial product, for example, then it falls into a second test. And that test is Gruner and Jar. Okay? Okay. So are you have to figure names. Like, are so they... these are case names. Yeah, case names. Yeah. In the same way that the name of this case is uh, Rothschilds and Hermes. Yeah. Okay. So there would be a principle coming from this case. Um, so, um, so first of all, we need to figure out which one it goes into. So now a few interesting other points on this is that I think this is really interesting. So when Rothschilds released the, um, the collection, he retained ownership of the smart contract. Okay. So what that meant, and I don't know the technical details here, but what that essentially meant was that when people were looking at it on the website or on OpenSea, well, on, probably on his website when it was minting. All they could see was a, a white sheet over a, what appeared to be a bag, but they couldn't see the specific bag because as with a lot of these mints, you can't choose which one you get. Mm. It's a bit of a gamble, yeah. right? Because some of them have bananas, some of them have whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then- they've all got different rarity and stuff. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and so then when you have minted, then he, on the back end, as I would call it, swaps the image, like manually swaps the image to an actual image of whatever Birkenbag you get. Yeah, yeah. Which is just an interesting point. I didn't realize that was possible. Essentially what that means is he still retains the power to do that in the future, which is very strange. Yeah, yeah, right. It almost makes it seem like quite a facade. But anyway, so he, total sales for him, for his collections, were just over a million dollars USD. And he retained, remember creator royalties? Yeah, yeah. Remember, remember what that is? Yes. So basically when it on sells in the secondary markets, he still retains in this situation 7.5% of any of those future sales. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So that's just a little bit more background on, on his particular collection. So the, uh, the court looks at the characteristics of uh, artistic expression. Okay, so remember we said if it's artistic, it goes into the Rogers case. Uh, if it is uh, commercial, it goes into the Gruner case. Okay. So uh, the Rogers case originally came from a movie. You can look it up. It's called uh, Ginger and Fred. Uh, <laughs> it's a 1986 movie okay. uh, that came out that had infringed on uh, some intellectual property uh, and it was deemed to be artistic expression and so there was a bunch of principles uh, that were put in place to determine whether or not that was actually infringed on someone's intellectual property. The question is if the primary purpose of uh, the uh, creation of whatever the content is or the material is is commercial then as I said it falls into the Gruner case. And so that particular case just involves, it's very simple, it just involves uh, assessing whether the defendant's conduct confuses customers as to the source of the product. So if it's deemed to be commercial and it's confusing as to who actually created it, it can be deemed as infringing on intellectual property rights and the person who's making that claim will probably you know, get some sort of remedy, i.e. damages. Makes sense. 
So the court said in this situation that uh, the judge decided that the Rogers case was potentially most applicable. Now, that was the one that's related to artistic works. Now, you have to look at everything here through this lens. What we're deciding here is not related to this collection necessarily. What we're de deciding in this situation is, are NFTs art or a commercial product? Of course. And this is significant. Um, and so basically the Rogers test, the, the judge said the, Ross, the Rogers test applies uh, as the primary purpose was made for artistic purposes and it didn't necessarily mislead consumers as to its affiliation with Hermes. Okay? And so in that situation, it's most likely that it will be protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and so the judge so it is artistic. Well, wait. Interesting. So, um, so the, there's a really interesting quote here. So it says this, ready? First Amendment protects right to speak against a trademark holder. So in that situation, he's basically trying to make a point in making them furry. He's trying to say that um, making them fluffy bags. He's trying to say like the use of natural materials, like i.e. like animal skin is bad. So he's trying to make like a, an artistic point on that, right? Yeah, right. So it says the First Amendment protects the right to speak out against the mark holder, but it doesn't permit a suggestion that the mark holder is the one speaking. Wow. Very interesting um, phrase. Basically means it, you, you can't pretend that the company that you're creating the art to sort of look like is actually behind it, right? Okay. So they consider that the Rogers test uh, could apply uh, because it constituted a form of artistic expression uh, and it didn't primarily mislead the uh, consumers potentially. Um, there was a bunch of uh, evidence from interviews um, from Rothschilds showing that he, he really did have an intention to make that sort of statement about na natural products and natural materials. However, Hermes presented a bunch of evidence of communication that demonstrated Rothschilds' ulterior intention to simply just make big money from the project. Uh, and so the court found that while making money was a motive, it may not necessarily have amounted to the primary motive, which was the key here. And so, for example, the court said that uh, the court wouldn't necessarily strip an artist of its First Amendment rights just because it was seeking, uh, you know, uh, some monetary value from what it made. You know, the movie, for example, sold in, in the box office, but it was still an artistic creation, right? Yeah, okay. So the primary motivator wasn't to make money. Correct. But yeah. But there was some money made. Yes, that's right. And that's reasonable. And so you just can happen to make money from art without having a commercial purpose. Correct. One interesting quote from the court says, the court should not expect the First Amendment applies only to works of starving artists whose soul's <laughs> mission is to share their artistic vision with the world. Interesting. Okay, so they don't have to be starving. So correct. They correct. can be very rich artists. Yeah, <laughs> you could read it as that. So basically at the end of this, uh, the court says, well, okay, there's, there's contradicting evidence here that points to a potential issue of fact. So um, we're trying to decide on what his actual intention motive was. Therefore, this is potentially more relevant for a jury. Now. The second question here is, okay, so if we do assume that the Rogers test applies, it's artistic expression, is it actually uh, protected by First Amendment rights? So what is the result of this Rogers test? Now, the court in Rogers stated this, in certain instances, the public's interest in avoiding competitive exploitation or consumer confusion outweighs First Amendment concerns. So basically what that means is, uh, the public's interest in ensuring that they're not confused is potentially more important than the artist's right to the freedom of speech, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it said, okay, uh, there's, two, there's two things to consider as to whether the Rogers test is uh, approved. The first one is, is uh, the artistic relevance? So is use of the trademark artistically relevant 
for the underlying work? Did it need to be used? Did the trademark need to be used to make whatever you know, artistic expression was made? Uh, so it's a really easy test. It basically is satisfied unless the mark was, has no artistic uh, relevance whatsoever. In this situation, you'd say, yeah, you know, it does have some relevance because he's trying to make a point about Hermes. So he needs to use some things that obviously show Hermes. So, okay. Although to a certain extent, it's a question of fact. And so maybe again, uh, not relevant for a summary judgment. Uh, the second question in the Rogers test is, uh, is it explicitly misleading? Okay, so the trademark must be, it must use explicitly misleading uh, language or, you know, connote something that is explicitly misleading to the public as to who created the work. And basically, that's satisfied if uh, it convinces the public that it was authorized by Hermes. Now, uh, there's a case uh, that answers this question. It's called uh, Pol Polaroid. It's from 1961. Uh, it was two companies. One of them had a, the, they called their company Pol Polaroid. The other one called it Polarad. And uh, there was a, a, a claim as to whether or not that confused the public. And there was a bunch of factors to be considered. Some of them are the sophistication of the relevant consumers, quality of the mark, et cetera. Basically, uh, the parties didn't agree on all of these factors as to whether or not it was misleading. And once again, uh, it was a genuine issue of fact. And as I said, that's better um, decided by a jury. So, so then, so basically the judge puts his hands up and he goes, listen, there's all of these issues that are issues of fact of what actually happened, who had what intention. But he's really nicely outlined all of the tests and he said, um, he's basically outlined how he thinks it should be decided. Now, uh, so then it goes to trial, right? Goes to trial 14th of February, 2023. That's very recently. That's less than a month ago. Yeah. Right? And so the jury found, this is interesting, Right? Remember what the judge said. The judge said it was artistic expression, most likely uh, protected by the First Amendment rights, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Jury found uh, Rothschild's primary motive was commercial. Okay. Yeah. So he was trying to make Indicating money. that the resulting NFTs were more similar to a consumer product than art. And it was therefore subject to the stricter Gruner test, which simply requires customer confusion as to the source of the work. That's it. Wow, okay. The jury found that consumers were or would have been sufficiently confused as to the source of the work, and therefore the court awarded Hermes over $100,000 in damages, which is small considering the fact that, you know, we said that I think he did more than a million dollars in revenue, but uh, that's certainly still a very good indication. So what does that mean for the future? So Hermes and Rothschilds are potentially, uh, we have to see how the courts use this case, but it may be a precedent uh, for NFT collections being able to be classified as commercialized products yeah, rather than mere artistic expression. And if you take it one step further, it's almost like you can take them and, and turn, them, turn them into securities and have them um, regulated by the SEC. So. Totally. So um, what does that mean for current uh, NFT collections? Uh, so it should mean that current artistic collections should consider uh, how they can basically stop, if they can stop consumers from being confused, as to whether or not it's endorsed by some sort of mark that they're using by a prominent disclaimer or press releases, et cetera, then in my head, that should, uh, that should solve that issue. Because remember, the test is just a consumer is going to be confused. Um, and so it's interesting. Now, just leading off this, yeah, have you heard of StockX? Yes. Okay, yeah. so you, you know what it does? Yeah, so essentially you can buy sneakers and, um, and Rolexes and things like that. And 
basically it's like a little stock market. So they have a price tracker on them. Yes. Um, they've got the bid ask price uh, and essentially um, it'll show price tracking over time as though you're looking at a stock. Correct. So that's right. So let's focus on the sneaker element of it for, for a moment here. Now, have you heard of the, their vault project? I haven't, no. You may have but, heard of um, it. So, oh, is this, is this basically where um, they're taking the items and putting them in a vault mm-hmm. and, um, and, what do and you, you don't actually, you get a token which represents you the value. You get an NFT, yeah. which represents the product, which is in their vault. Yeah. Okay, so summary of that is basically, um, it's still all secondary. So if someone sells, uh, I, my understanding actually is that StockX actually purchases on the secondary market a bunch of shoes um, and, or at least facilitates the transaction. And, can, and turns them into NFTs, so it takes photos, blah, 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 lists them as whatever they are, puts photos up, and people can purchase them. I could purchase one, for example, usually large amounts of money, maybe $500. It sits in the vault. The benefit of that is it makes it highly liquid, easy to transfer. I can then sell it and invest in shoes without having to worry about uh, shipping and getting damaged and storage and all that stuff, right? So hopefully people understand what's going on there. So... Um, you can call these twin NFTs. It means that you're buying an NFT that's related to a twin physical product. Okay. And so there is just one more case. And I'm not going to dive into it in the same detail, but there's one more case, uh, which is currently uh, still underway. And it's Nike versus StockX. Oh, interesting. Yes. Okay. Uh, also worth noting in America, you say versus in Australia, you say and for civil cases. Okay. There you go. Um, so... Uh, basically, um, have you heard of Dolce and Gabbana? Yeah. So Dolce and Gabbana were one of the first people to do, or one of the first organizations to do these twin NFTs. So they sold nine twin N- NFTs linked to physical dresses and they totaled, so nine, right? Yeah. And they totaled $6 million okay. USD in revenue from these. So for example, the, the highest price dress, I think it had seven blue sapphires and like 140 diamonds and it sold okay. for like, more than a million USD. Um, and it provided those customers with like some specific invitations to upcoming events, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And so basically um, for those of you who aren't aware, just very briefly, I'll just do Nike. So Nike uh, was founded in 1964. What was it originally called? Uh, Tiger shoes. No. Tiger, um, they, they were the first shoes that they. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. In Australia, it's an ice cream brand. Uh, Blue Ribbon Sports. Oh, Blue Ribbon. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I did read the book, but yes. <laughs> um, I forgot. <laughs> Great book. Um, so they changed their name in 1971 uh, to Nike. Uh, and obviously they supply shoes and apparel, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, worth noting, iconically uh, known for their swoosh. Do you remember how the swoosh was uh, created? Uh, I believe some kind of art student yes. project. Yes. Um, and uh, no, I, I, they wanted something that was looking like they were moving forward yes. and sporty and... Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll come in from go. here. So lady named Caroline Davidson uh, is the person you're referring to. Yes, she was, uh, my understanding, she was either a very recent art student uh, who'd started working or was still studying. And so she charged $35 to create the design. Now, this is very contentious, but what's the value of the current... Nike logo, well, I have some valuations that I've seen online, anywhere from 15 to 30 billion US dollars, the value of the uh, Nike swoosh. Yeah. Um, that's pretty insane. Yeah, they absolutely. They paid $30, $35. Yeah, but also <laughs> it's like you're paying for something which had no value at Correct. the time. No, totally. And um, 
totally. it was just a made up and like it's you know <laughs> it's a it's a pen stroke you know? totally uh so StockX, uh very briefly founded in 2015 online marketplace for buying and selling rare um sneakers and other items uh generally uh buyers bid on the items and the uh once the option is complete StockX will take the item which is where they really come into their own verify it and then send it out to the um, purchaser now that's good for uh rolexes for example yes um because there are a lot of fakes and people that don't they're not in the market, don't really know what's fake and what's real. So, no, totally. Yeah. Uh, so uh, now in this particular situation, we're talking about their Vault NFT program. We've covered that already as to what it is. And so basically in February 2022, so we're talking a year ago, uh, Nike filed a trademark infringement um, claim on StockX. Okay. Uh, the claim had two elements. The first one, that use of Nike's uh, sneaker design without permission confused consumers as to the source. Okay. And so that's the actual pictured design of the shoe. Second one is infringement and dilution, which we talked about, of Nike's swoosh logo, causing consumers to, be, to believe that the NFTs were authorized by Nike. Okay. okay. So yeah. swoosh logo, dilution, and then actual sneaker design. Now, this has not been to court as per se yet. It's just started. It's, uh... It started a year ago, and it's been through a bunch of mediation, arbitration, negotiation, etc. It's been through a couple of uh, court hearings, is my understanding, but it hasn't been to trial yet. So we, the really interesting thing is we don't have an outcome from this case, and it may be impacted by the recent uh, case of Hermes mm. and Rothschild. Now, just very, very, very briefly, I'm almost finished here. Um, StockX claimed uh, a defense which is called nominal fair use, Okay. So basically what that means is uh, they raised a defense uh, which in regards to the infringement uh, of, of the copyright. And this particular defense allows trademark use where it was necessary, no more of it was used than necessary, and where uh, StockX accurately portrayed its relationship with Nike. Now this is relevant in situations where, and this is going to become very obvious, where you're listing like items for sale on your website and you obviously have to use a picture of the item. You have to use a description of the item to actually sell the product. Yeah. It's called nominal fair use. Yeah. Okay. And so, as I said, there's three, there's three elements, necessary, necessary amount of use and the relationship. Okay. So in this situation, obviously the NFTs correspond with specific pairs of shoes. Uh, It was, um, it was not the NFTs themselves. This is the key. The NFTs themselves, this is their argument, was not the product. The NFT simply represented the product. Okay? And so therefore, StockX argued that use of the Switch logo in the image was absolutely necessary to depict the shoes. Right? Makes sense. In regards to the amount of use, uh, the Nike logo was only displayed on the shoes themselves. And so it appears relatively um, reasonable. Now, in regards to the relationship, uh, StockX argues that uh, it had a disclaimer, uh, that it disclaimed any association with Nike, but Nike argued that it wasn't enough. Now, there's another defense, and uh, this is kind of interesting, right? The second defense, and this is my very last point, it's, <laughs> for anyone who's been watching this, yeah. this is an undercover cop. They drive uh, Chrysler 300C SRTs. And they're one of the best sounding cars out there. Yeah. And, and he keeps rolling around. And, and he keeps running around this. We're on a racetrack. We're on the racetrack. Catch track. that up. And so he's just having a good time. I mean, all power to him. I'd be doing the same, to be honest. Yeah. He's having fun. 
Uh, okay, so one more thing here. You ready? Continuous. Sorry, there's a yeah. lot. There's a lot that's going all right. on. No, it's, no, all, it's all good. part of it. It's a feature. That's right. That's right. Okay, so uh, the second one is first sale doctrine. Okay, so it allows the buying. It it allows um, um, sellers uh, the the ability to sell shoes that bear trademarks after the trademark holder has sold those items. So you know if you're selling a item in a secondary market, or if you've purchased them wholesale and you're selling them sort of on the primary market. It allows consumers, uh, sorry, allows sellers to do that. But this principle or this defense is limited where the resale is likely to confuse customers okay. as to whether or not the actual company is behind the sale of it. StockX asserts that the transactions you know, of this vault project are no different than any other marketplace that includes images and a description of the goods, right? But this is the key here. Nike argues that the NFTs are distinct products in themselves. And the reason for that is price disparity. Now, all that means is Nike states that StockX has sold Nike branded Vault NFTs at prices that are many times the multiple of the value of the underlying shoes. Okay. But the secondary value or the original well, retail value? The original retail value. Okay. Uh, so what they're claiming is that, and, and I guess the interesting thing here is like, yeah, well, yeah, leave it at that for the minute. What they're claiming is that there's a major disconnect between the price of the physical shoes, what they're asserting should be the price of the original shoes, and the price that's actually being paid for the digital option to redeem the shoes. So they're claiming that this demonstrates that the consumer considers the Vault NFT to be a unique asset with a distinct value. Um, that's separate to the physical shoes. If the Vault NFTs are distinct from the shoes, that could defeat the defense and imply that the NFT is a product in and of itself. Now, if that is the case, then you simply apply the principles of Hermes and Rothschilds as to whether or not it uh, confuses consumers. If it does, then it's infringing on intellectual property rights potentially. If it doesn't, then there's potentially no claim. Wow. So it's but a precedent. How, so it's, yeah. So the Hermes case is potentially a precedent that may or may not end up solving this Nike case, which is really interesting. Mm, I think that would really show causation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is uh, an unusual segment. Uh, I've never done a law related segment before, but I'm really, really good. I'm really hoping that that is interesting to people. I tried to explain it in a way that was consumable because I know sometimes uh, the way judges write is difficult to read. So um, that is that. I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting space to watch. It's something I'm interested in. Uh, there's, there's other cases. There's another case, for example, that comes out of Singapore as to whether or not a NFT can even be just do, decided as a property. Yeah. Is it, an, is it property or not? Um, that's a really interesting case as well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, that is think, my segment. Uh, it was a really interesting breakdown of the way that NFTs and the law will um, intersect. And I think we're going to see even more of that um, through time, especially with projects um, like we've previously done uh, another block. Yes. Um, well, that's be, right. Uh, There's a lot of questions there. Like, I'm uh, not making any statements, but you're listing an item for sale as a unique product. And it may or may not have art or it may have the name of a song. Is that song copyright? Is the name of that song copyright? 
Is that infringing on the copyright by selling it as a unique product? I don't know. We know that they've had a lot of problems um, with uh, negotiating with OpenSea um, just because they don't want to copyright infringe um, and then you know allow copyright infringement on their platform, everything like that. This is the nature of new technology and the law just trying. This is the tension that's required to really sort of um, govern new technology. Absolutely. So, uh, it's great. I think it's really cool. I agree. So we're solving um, the housing crisis here on HQLA. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to be uh, talking about a technology that I think is really cool. This is going to be a guessing game, so don't look at my screen. Not looking. Um, so I think this is um, a really interesting, exciting opportunity. I okay. think it was exciting seven to ten years ago, okay. um, and I think the hype around it has actually really died down right. um, in the amount of people that are talking about it. Okay. Um, but I actually think it shouldn't have, and I think that the technology has actually continued to develop um, since that time oh. um, because it's actually really cool. Okay. Um, it's not VCR. Are we talking about David Bonzo's favorite thing? <laughs> well, um, at the moment, uh, there's a bit of a rental crisis, right? Okay. Um, around Sydney. You didn't answer my question. <laughs> we are, but I don't want to. I don't want to. Sp- <laughs> you don't guess yet, all right? Don't guess yet. Okay. So, <laughs> at the moment, um, that's not a reference that you can look up. By the way, that's someone. That was one of our teachers. Um, <laughs> at the moment, there's a bit of a rental crisis. Um, so, particularly around Sydney. Um, with multiple areas that have massive rents. Uh, so the average Sydney rent as of yes. um, March 2023, yep. guess the weekly figure. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, okay, all right, all right, I got this. Uh, Sydney average rent, weekly rent is going to be $650. Oh, very good guess. So the number that I pulled, and that actually might be correct by now, but uh, okay. the number that I pulled was from early March, um, $630 a week. Oh, okay, great. I honestly I honestly didn't read or anything. Very I'm, bang on. Um, so in 1955, a house in Box Hill in Sydney was... Um, oh, so that's where I live. <laughs> there you go. I do. Well, this is in Sydney. But, but in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> So a house in Box Hill was um, seven thousand dollars in um, and in nineteen 19- house. Yeah. Um, Wait, what year? In nineteen fifty-five. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're missing half I the story here, <laughs> mate. <laughs> um, in nineteen seventy, the median house price was twenty-eight thousand dollars in okay. um, in Sydney. Um, today, the median house price in Sydney um, in total is. 1.4 million wow. with the median unit price at 748k. Crazy. Um, so what am I talking about here? I'm talking about a technology that has helped create both cannelloni and rocket parts. You have to guess. 3D printing. That's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your, that was that was your one. So I wrote here that that was your one last chance to guess before I give it away. <laughs> I like that you wrote that. <laughs> But um, obviously, you could have guessed at any point there. Thank you. Um, so what am I talking about? I'm actually talking about 3D printed houses. <laughs> okay. Um, this is really interesting. So one of the most expensive parts about building a house is... Um, building it. Is building it, yeah. <laughs> one of the most expensive <laughs> parts about building a house is uh, labor. Is the house itself. Yeah. The house, yeah. And all of the things are associated with building it. Well, actually, so what I was going to say Sorry. was labor. Labor, um, yes. And yes. I would argue that the majority of the cost actually comes down to that uh, labor and materials. Okay. Um, so sure, the land's worth something there, but yes. um, it definitely depends on the area. Yeah. Um, sometimes the land's worth um, the majority. Um, usually the land's worth um, a small Yep. Um, no, I get your point it. here, yep. Um, overall, I think this method could save a lot on 
the labor and the materials. Okay. Um, so there's this really cool company called Icon, and they've built seven homes for the homeless in Austin. Wow. Um, and they built a few full house projects that they've sold uh, as well. And so their method is that there's a 3D printer that's shipped out. It's assembled by four people in an hour. Um, and the 3D printers... Um, whoa, whoa. So, hang on. Oh, okay. So they assemble the 3D printer. They ship it to the site. Yeah. Um, four people assemble the... The 3D printer, um, not 3D the house. Printer. Yeah, yeah. Yep. They, they assemble have it four it, hours. They assemble it in one hour. One hour, sorry. Yeah, um, four people, one hour. And then uh, what the 3D printer is, essentially this structure that operates like a bit of a crane in a container yard. Okay. So picture four pillars um, with a central piece that can move on an X and Y axis anywhere um, within those four pillars. So they would set up those four pillars on the four corners of the um, concrete slab that's been laid. And, um, well, I'm just visualizing just literally a large 3D printer. Like I've seen the small ones. Yeah. It's just a big version of that, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And it just moves around. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I've got, I've got you. Um, so basically, um, yeah, it's placed on the four corners. And, um, and the central piece can be moved around anywhere over that slab. And so the central piece is connected to a tube um, and out of the tube comes concrete. Really? And so, yeah, so it's this... This is interesting. So each of the companies that is doing this is um, is layering out... Uh, so, like, they own... Has they someone have, painted this idea? Well, they all have... All the companies that are in the space have a unique material, yeah. which they've uh, um, uh, yep. generated themselves. Okay. Um, so I'll go into a few of the materials later. Um, but this concrete is layered out according to um, the design from... That's in the... In the computer of yep. the printer yep yep um and so the first layer is about 10 centimeters high and the printer moves around the job site doing that first layer ah, all the walls and things like that yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's got all those um that layout in mind and then it starts coming back and spitting out the next layer of concrete on yep. top of that um until obviously it's um it's done and yes. this saves a lot of labor because one person can supervise the process make sure that it's working properly stop it if it needs to be stopped a project manager role than it is of a um, traditional construction role because he has to highly go and skilled though exactly so one highly skilled person has versus maybe a large number of lesser skilled people that's right and so he has to go and make sure that it's working know exactly how the printer works know how the hardware and the software works to try and correct issues uh, on the go um, but at the same time that can be better than fifty people that are all on the side at the yeah, same yeah. time yeah it sounds um, fantastic. Yeah, so basically the designs actually look really nice. So their show, showcase home is called House Zero. Okay. Um, and it really shows off what they can do with this method. So, Is there a maximum size? Obviously the answer is yes to that, surely. Uh, you would think so. So I would say probably. Um, okay. But this is a pretty big <laughs> solid um, answer. house. So, well, I'm, <laughs> you can move a it around. Solid probably. <laughs> <laughs> solid probably. I guess you can move it around. Oh, so different sections. I would say oh, if you yeah. really wanted to. So probably no no end to what your imagination can um, think. Emphasis on the probably. If there's a probably no end to what your imagination <laughs> can think. <laughs> um, so, um, so one thing that took me by surprise yes. is it's not 100% 3D printed. So I kind of, uh, ori yeah. my original reservation was that, oh, it has to all be made with the 3D printer mm -hmm. um, because it's 3D printed. Um, and then I thought about that, and I'm like, wait, that's that's kind of a dumb thought because, no, um, oh, thank you, um, because why would you take the um, why wouldn't you take the best of what 3D printing could do and combine it with the best of what 
um, current houses today right. are okay. doing. Okay, okay, explain. Um, so you take the low, co- the low cost and the efficiency and you mix that with the great design work okay. um, and other pieces of materials that look great. So I have this a couple of images of House Zero here, so I'll show you the... Um, Oh, oh, wow. I was not expecting this. So this is the in... Basically, this is the exterior. So I was, I was expecting something like Roblox style. Yeah, so or like they've Minecraft made, or something. They've essentially made a series of... So there's a straight wall through the middle. Yep. There's a series of curved walls. If you're watching this at home, you know, I was actually explaining some of the uh, images here if you're just listening to it. That's right. So basically, um, each of these is a glass panel between um, these three concrete pillar areas. These are the three concrete pillar areas and it makes up this great living space. Wow. So in this far end, there's a study uh, little nook. What an incredible house. In this one, there's a a hanging out living area and this next one, there's a dining one. Um, over here, there's like the kitchen and it's all this wood paneling that they've mixed with the 3D printed concrete. Yes. And as you can see, the layers actually do look quite nice. Oh, it looks amazing. Um, yeah. And then on the other side, you've got bedrooms and, um, and a whole other use of mixed spaces. Oh, look at the texture that the uh, 3D design, uh, 3D printing makes. Exactly. So it's this really interesting concrete texture. And basically, uh, so what they've done In is, what country do they do this? Well, this is in the US. In the US, um, right. And so they're operating in Austin at the moment. Oh, and yeah. so they made seven much smaller designs for um, homeless people, which are all um, in that kind of style. Yes. Um, in and that style? Yeah. And they've... Um, oh, my gosh. And, so, and then they've made four <laughs> of those houses um, that are wow. uh, sold originally. So what you'll see is that they've, they've used really good looking pieces of wood um, in the interior. Yep. Um, and... They actually have a lot of the walls in the bedroom areas that are kind of covered by wooden cabinetry. Ah, uh, yep. Um, so it's not all exposed, that texture. Yeah. It would, you'd get a bit over it. Yeah, and yeah. there are absolutely, there are a lot of large glass windows. And so what it really looks like is kind of 30% of the bedrooms sort of area are in that texture. And as well as that, they were saying, well, you can cover it up with plaster as well. It's just like the structure of the house. Yeah. It's just the framing. You could think of it as the framing of the house. Exactly, because not everyone has exposed brick in their house. Like no. Not everyone wants that. No, um, but and some so, people do. Exactly. And so you can have areas of exposed brick, you yeah. can have areas of not, um, but in this case yeah, it's, it's areas of um, exposed 3D printed concrete, which actually makes a really nice, it looks like a really cool texture. It does. It's a little inconsistent, which is kind of cool because it um, has those... Uh, areas that sort of jut out a little. Um, yeah, it, it, well, that's right. And nature, it kind of feels natural more so than man-made because, you know, nature's inherently kind of like random and abstract. Exactly. And that's what it feels like. Yeah, for yeah, sure. So cool. made a really interesting, I really like that um, concept, the open living um, areas. Yeah. And, um, no, it's very cool. And all that. Um, and so obviously you've still got the rest of the builds to do after that. You know, yes. you've got the, the, um, the finishes, the electrical, the plumbing. Um, the only downside is it takes 16 years to build each house and they cost $40 million. <laughs> no, so, <laughs> well, the idea is that um, it's actually cheaper to um, 3D print. Um, so another company that's doing this is in Germany. Um, they're called Perry. Uh, cool. And so they recently had its first um, 3D printed home that passed all the building code regulations there. Yep, yep. Um, and basically, that's a scaffolding company with a research and development department, which is oh, wow. almost more interesting than the fact that they're doing 3D printed homes because <laughs> it's funny that they have an R&D. be nice to know who that person heading up the department is. You know, that's a, that's a pretty innovative person who's doing that. Oh, exactly. Um, so they've produced a, three, a two-story house with wow. 160 meters squared of living space. That is something I struggle to conceptualize. When someone says square meters of a house... 
Mm. Like people talk about it a lot with apartments and it's, people go, whoa, that's massive. Or, whoa, that's so small. And I'm like, I literally can't gauge that. It's a small house and a large apartment. that sounds apartment. like a lot. It says like a hundred and something. I'm like, I'm thinking like, whoa, yeah. that's like a football field. It's a small house. But it's not. It's a large apartment. So our apartment is 140. Ah, um, so that's how you... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Jeez. <laughs> Um, my future apartment is 1000 um, <laughs> and uh, it'll feature have you seen have you seen the um, this is a tangent but okay. in New York City the 250 million dollar apartment um, that's on top of no I haven't it's on top it's of this it's not this obnoxious guy with the grey hair yeah that's that guy yeah 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 the guy on YouTube um, Ryan yeah. Um, yes yeah yeah he wears the suits and he, he jumps in the pools of, with the suit on with and the stuff suit like on. that. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He's great. So, yeah, it looks like uh, they were using the same method there with the 3D printer operating like a large crane yes. um, situation. Okay, okay, um, okay, okay. There's also Mighty Buildings um, times the Polari Group. So this is a combo um, <laughs> okay. on um, YouTube nice. that I found. Nice. Um, so this is basically a project where... Are they based somewhere? Yes. So they're based in Coachella. Um, well, they're doing this project in Coachella. Um, Coachella Valley. Um, it's at Palm Springs in, Palm Springs. Um, okay. you know, the Coachella Festival? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's in Coachella. Yeah. So basically they're taking a few steps further. This is a collaboration. Um, so they're aiming to do the world's first zero net energy 3D printed homes. So the main difference um, is that they're prefabricating their houses in a warehouse and shipping them. Um, so they can make a full tiny home instead of doing the construction. Not so, in concrete, I assume. So I would call it more of manufacturing. And um, their actual unique um, process... A friend of ours is doing this. Yeah, so they have their own patented type of material as well. Yeah, it would have to be quite light, but also quite rigid. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that's Carbon that's fiber. what you would have to look for. That'd have to be cheap. Yeah, too. it's like some kind of stone, um, I think. Oh, really? So it's like some kind of stone that they've made um, to as their own little patented um, material. Um, so here's the reason behind it. Um, in 2021 and 2022, this is why it's going to solve the housing crisis. We saw a huge increase in the cost of lumber as there were supply shortages. Yes, that's right. So the cost of wood seemed to be going up uh, at least 40% a year. That's right. We had a friend who was building decks at that point and he was complaining about the issue of having to... Well, we were running it... Sorry, this is a tangent, but it's interesting. We were running a website for him and it was an, we were, we, we, we'd created an automatic quotation tool that allowed customers to come on and quote up their own decks. And he had to continue to get us to inc or add a multiple uh, onto the number at the end to continue to you know allow for this crisis. Yeah, that's right. And so we had to keep marking up the price of wood. Um, and so, you know, we've got our own experience with this. Um, so there's actually a random length lumber futures market on the Chicago Merchantile Exchange, which was up 236% um, from its um, trough to peak in May 2021. Okay. Um, so the CME is the largest derivatives exchange for context there um, in the world. Um, okay. And uh, essentially that's a futures market. So... Um, the derivative on the wood, everyone was so fearful of this price increasing that they marked it up by that much. What's the future of the industry? So Dubai wants to 3D print one quarter of its new buildings by 2030. Every building? Yeah, quarter of its new buildings. What about like a skyscrapers? I don't know. It just wants to. Um, <laughs> it's, that's their plan. I haven't, oh, they I haven't want read to. into it. They're not going to do it. In the same way that I want a private jet. Well, they, they plan. They, that's what <laughs> their plan is. Um, but I think they can actually do it because they seem to just do things um, like crazy at crazy scale. Yeah, no, no, that's right. Um, like building Dubai in the, in the shortest amount of time and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, uh, what, are, what are the few of the issues that they have to get past first? So strict construction requirements. Um, so some of the systems in place 
might not pass regulations in every country. Yeah. Um, no, totally. Various weather conditions. Um, y- yeah, Dubai. Incredibly tumultuous weather conditions. Yeah, well, so one of the issues um, was that constructions, um, the German one had some pictures of, or one of the European ones, had some pictures of um, a site covered in scaffolding, which had a huge gazebo over the project to protect oh, right. the printer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so it had all of this um, sheeting up like this giant tent. Oh, okay. I was thinking about weather conditions after building the actual house and as oh. to how it would actually withstand them. Well, it's essentially concrete. Yeah, um, okay. You make a good point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, there are also different uh, materials. So I think con- concrete seems to be the main consensus, um, but not everyone just wants a, a grey printed um, concrete house. Um, and I'm not sure how sustainable it is. Um, that's something to think about. So it's good for, um, but it is good for insulation. Um, yeah. I think it's re- relatively sustainable, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, like it sounds like you might need to use less energy for heating, cooling, etc. Yeah. And yeah. that's a good thing, I suppose. Um, yeah, and the, the material itself. Um, and one of the other issues is that the technology is obviously very expensive. So there's this website called um, Aniwa with okay. two Aniwa. A's, um, and that actually lists out the costs of each of the 3D printers. Um, oh. So they have 13 different models from 13 different companies that are doing this, okay. um, and they're all different specs. I and they, there'd be 13 companies doing this already. Well, it is interesting, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it basically says that they can cost anything between 180k and $1 million. Oh, that's much cheaper than I thought it would be. Yeah, so it isn't like a, bad. A builder could buy that. Like anyone that you would do within your day-to-day work environment. Yeah, well... Like you would be dealing with people who could buy this thing. Exactly, yeah. Um, not that I do anything for work. Um, <laughs> they, um, <laughs> I'm a podcaster. Um, that's my that's my career. So I'm dealing with you every day, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I could I could deal with someone that can afford it, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so like in this case, you need the 3D printer and you need the truck to get it there and you need um, the materials and um, yes. and everything. But yes. still, it's um, it's definitely, it could be an overall um, net benefit. Okay. So in saying all of that, this method of construction could bring down the construction cost by 20 to 40%. Um, so in one area of France, a local university did some research um, and worked out that the average construction cost of a full-sized single-family home uh, could be built in this area for two hundred thirty-two thousand dollars in twenty eighteen. Right. So that was um, USD. Um, and then they worked out that this was a three D printed home, um, and that was twenty percent less than the cost to construct a same house um, by traditional methods, single family okay. home. Gotcha. Um, so that's where you get that percentage from. Yeah. Exactly. Fantastic. Um, yeah. So that's great. Um, my conclusion here is that this is a really cool future idea. Yeah. Um, it actually seems pretty viable. Um, yeah, it sounds. It does sound viable. Yeah. Yeah, and it could be a really. We good haven't spoken about the time it takes to build the house. Do you have that information or not? No. Okay. We're assuming it's quick. Yeah, I would assume it's pretty quick. Yeah, there are a lot of ha- like home builders out there. It's a massive industry. Um, construction is gigantic. Oh, here's one for you. How noisy is it when it's building it? I'm not sure. If it's not noisy, can it work 24/7? Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. That's actually a great point. Um, could potentially be a lot faster. Mm. So we've had a, uh, a few different styles. The Icon seems to be the most premium product. Yes. Um, that was the initial one you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, we yeah. talked about uh, Perry in Germany. We you talked did. about Mighty Homes. Yes, um, there are, yeah. Icon least, was Austin. At least 10. Yeah. 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 Austin in Texas. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of different approaches from going from doing it straight to um, mm-hmm. doing a prefabricated approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Love it. But it's a great idea, I think. 
this has been HQLA episode 30. Yeah. Um, we were saying zero. goodbye to SEO. We were looking oh, at the copyright infringement. Oh, we, yeah, we do. There were two champagne glasses and both of them were really dirty. Oh. And so I was like, ah, <laughs> this would look great for <laughs> the shot, but <laughs> I wouldn't want to drink it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so right now Isaac is opening a bottle of Prosecco, um, a.k.a. Champagne, uh, not official. And uh, it is episode 30, and so that's significant for us. It's also three years since Isaac and I started doing uh, some business endeavors, and so uh, it's a significant Ready? moment for us. So- <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> Very. And so we just wanted to share it with you guys. Uh, it's, we're also on holidays, and so as I said earlier today, does it even need justification? Maybe I not. don't think so. You know what they say, Nathan? Uh, no, I don't know what they say. Champagne for oh. my real friends and real pain for my sham friends. Cheers. Oh, that was, that was a good sound. Hmm. Oh, yeah. When you're drinking it like this, it feels like you're doing the thing where you pour it into the other person's mouth. Oh. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, let's you do know, that. No. no, put the, put the elbows yeah, around yeah, yeah. and then drink, drink it like that. No, no, no. I'll do it, no, I'll do it with my microphone. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it. I, I, feel, I feel like we're just going to drink this now. So uh, It's been episode 30. Um, we have said goodbye to intellectual property. Um, no. We've said goodbye to I obviously wasn't listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> said goodbye to advertising. Um, <laughs> we're living the nomad lifestyle at the moment. Um, no things, no concept. <laughs> um, Thank you yep. for joining us. Until next time.